Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter six. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hello, my friends, and welcome to our discussion of Romans chapter 6. The title tonight is The Permanent Glory of the New Covenant. We saw it last week in Romans 5. Therefore, we are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Him, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And that, my friends, is the permanent glory of the New Covenant. It is an everlasting covenant. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. If the Holy Spirit has been given to us, then so has the entire Trinity been given to us. The church's doctrine of the indwelling Trinity. If the Trinity is an undivided unity, we see that God is one. So if the Holy Spirit is poured into us, so is the Father poured into us, and so is the Son. Baptism into the Trinity allows our redeemed Father in human nature to be indwelt with the entire Trinity. Jesus took on human nature, and this final Adam, Jesus Christ, could undo the cursed ground and reunite us to divine love again. Divine love is the Trinity. And through sanctifying grace of baptism, we have a way back to life in the Trinity. That's good news. That's good news. Finally, Paul is giving us very good news. Life with the Trinity, life with infinite love can start right here, right now. Love is the eternal now. That's the euangelion. That's the good news. Life with the Trinity starts now at baptism. Participation in the divine nature of God once again. By sanctifying grace, we are able to participate, actually participate in the life of the Trinity once again here and now. God is a trinity of three persons, but a unity of one God. We sing the old hymn, praise the holy trinity, undivided unity, holy God, mighty God, God immortal be adored. There's different divine personhood within the Trinity, but an undivided one unity, one God in three persons. The Shema Yisrael is the Jewish prayer that serves as the centerpiece for every morning and every evening. And it says here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. Shema, the Lord God is one, not three. This is, this is baffling. God was concealed in the Old Testament. He's hidden or concealed. He was always behind the veil. But God revealed in the new covenant when the veil was torn from top to bottom at the moment of crucifixion, God revealed his inmost inner being, a holy trinity, a mystery that is inaccessible to reason alone. And even to Israel's faith before the incarnation of God's son and the sending of the holy spirit. Hebrews tells us by this new and living way, which Jesus initiated and opened for us through the veil as in the Holy of Holies, that is through his 
flesh. So the Trinity, the three persons, but one God, each had different assignments. Each had a different mission. God, the Father, the Creator. God, the Son, the Redeemer. God, the Spirit, the Sanctifier. And we see artists trying to portray it in different ways. You see this painting, this beautiful painting. Notice all the faces are the same. One God. But they have their instruments. Jesus has the cross, his instrument of redemption. He, the little Lamb of God, God, the Creator, the Son burst on his chest, the Father, and the Spirit with the dove on his shoulder. And God the Father handing the rod to the Holy Spirit. We live now in the age of the Holy Spirit. Artists tried to express it. Here, this one is another impression that I liked in the Cusco School from Spain. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four corners. God, three faces, three persons in one God. And if we zoom in, we see those three faces. They look very familial, don't they? And we see that they point to the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the rod is handed off on earth to the church. You see the papal tiara, the authority of Peter, of St. Peter, and the papacy. So the baptized are indwelt with the entire Trinity. Catechism 260 tells us that the ultimate end of the divine economy is the entry of God's creatures into the perfect unity of the blessed Trinity. That's supported by Jesus' own words in the high priestly prayer in John 17. He says to the Father, I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, are in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, so that the whole world may believe that you have sent me. The glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be even as we are one. I in them, thou in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that thou hast sent me and thou hast loved them even as thou hast loved me. These are his final words before his passion. Catechism 260 says, even now we are called to be a dwelling for the most holy trinity. If a man loves me, says the Lord, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make Make our home with him, our abode with him, the Father and the Son. Jesus is explaining the promise of the Holy Spirit. One of the great saints in this century, Elizabeth of the Trinity, loved the Trinity. She entered the Carmel Order in Dijon, France in 1901. And this is her prayer that's in our catechism at number 269. She says, oh my God, Trinity, whom I adore, help me forget myself entirely so to establish myself in you, unmovable and peaceful, as if my soul were already ready in eternity. See, it can happen now. May nothing be able to trouble my peace or make me leave you, O my unchanging God. But may each minute bring me more deeply into your mystery. Grant my soul peace. Make it your heaven, your beloved dwelling, the place of your rest. May I never abandon you there, but may I be there whole and entire, completely vigilant in my faith, eternally adoring and wholly giving over to your creative action. That's her beautiful prayer. Elizabeth of the Trinity died at the ripe old age of 26 from Addison's disease. She said, I have found heaven on earth since heaven is God and God is in my soul. She knew the Trinity resided in her soul now from baptism and she was already living heaven on earth. She understood what happened to her at baptism, that she was indelt with the entire Trinity. Pope Francis made this Carmelite nun a saint on October 16th of 2016, and her feast day is coming up November 8th. This artist's rendition of the Trinity I found very interesting, and the four quadrants are four 
pictures. The first one, the first arrow, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus, before he ascends to the Father, says to go baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The second one, Jesus being baptized by John in the Jordan River. John says, I saw the Spirit ascend as a dove from heaven and remained on him. We know the whole Trinity was present. God the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We know the Trinity was in the Old Testament. We saw hints of it last year. Abraham and the Trinity in Genesis chapter 18 the Lord appeared to Abraham as three men at the Oaks of Mamre. And then that fourth picture is St. Augustine's story of the Trinity. And I'd like to tell you that story. It's called The Child by the Seaside. While Augustine was working on his treatise, his book called On the Trinity, he was walking by the seaside one day, meditating on the difficult problem of how God could be three persons at once. And he came upon a little child. And the child had dug a little hole in the sand and with a small seashell was scooping water from the sea into the small hole. And Augustine watched him for a while. And finally, he asked the child what he was doing. And the child answered that he would scoop all the water from the sea and pour it into the little hole in the sand. What? Augustine said. That is impossible. Obviously, the sea is too large and the hole is too small. Indeed, said the child, but I will sooner draw all the water from the sea and empty it into this hole than you will succeed in penetrating the mystery of the Holy Trinity with your limited understanding. Well, Augustine turned away in amazement, and when he looked back, the child had disappeared. The mystery of the eternal, infinite Trinity. The Trinity must be revealed by God himself. Catherine of Siena prays, O eternal Trinity, you are a deep sea in which the more I seek, the more I find. And the more I find, the more I seek to know you. You fill us insatiably because the soul before the abyss which you are is always famished and hungering for you, O eternal Trinity. It desires to behold truth in your light. We, my friends, could never reason, the Trinity, with our own human reason. The Catechism tells us at 234, the mystery of the most holy Trinity is the central mystery of the Christian faith and life. It is the mystery of God in himself, and therefore the source of all other mysteries of the faith that enlighten the faith. The mystery of the most holy Trinity is the most fundamental and essential teaching in the hierarchy of the truths of the faith. And the whole history of salvation is identical with the history of the way and the means by which the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit reveals himself to men and reconciles and unites with himself those who turn away from sin. Now, we could never reason the Trinity with our own human reason. So God revealed the Trinity to us. It was a divine revelation. The Trinity stands at the center of historical and biblical revelation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ compelled the first Christians to recognize that Jesus was God. Yet Jesus spoke to people about two other persons within God, the Father who had sent him into the world and the Spirit in whom Jesus acted and the one whom Jesus promised to bestow upon us. John the Baptist bore witness. He said, I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven and it remained on Jesus. I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom 
you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have bore witness that this is the Son of God. How did John the Baptist know this? We could never reason the Trinity with our own human reason. But John's father, Zechariah, was in the temple behind the veil. He got his chance to go in the smoke screen. He couldn't see God. But an angel of the Lord came and spoke to Zechariah and said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John. This was another son of promise to a barren womb of old Elizabeth, very similar to Abraham and Sarah. You will have joy, a fruit of the Spirit, and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for John will be great before the Lord. He shall drink no wine nor strong drink. That's the Nazarite vow. But John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And when Mary and Elizabeth meet at the visitation, Elizabeth says to Mary, for behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leaped for joy, leaped for joy, a fruit of the Holy Spirit, because in her womb was John full of the Holy Spirit, and they had great joy. The promised son was given by God. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from conception forward. And Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit himself, prophesies and says at the end of Luke 1, you child will be called the prophet of the most high and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins through the tender mercy of our God and when the day shall dawn upon us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death John the Baptist the voice the forerunner to the Messiah the one crying out in the desert it will cost him his voice the voice will be silenced when Herod beheads him. You see his, his head severed and in the cup. But you also see him always pointing as a forerunner to Jesus Christ, Messiah. He will be pictured in art with, with, with Jesus Christ in a small chalice, always pointing to Jesus. Now, how did John recognize Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to John, but the Trinity did. In a theophany at his baptism in the Jordan River, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit rested on him, in whom I am well pleased. And John knew supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit so alive in him, every human inclination of reason would have said, This isn't the Son of God. This is my cousin. I used to work with him in the workshop. But the Holy Spirit illuminated John's mind and his heart to receive the Word of God and to trust. The Trinity was a huge revelation from God to humanity. We could never have reasoned the Trinity with our own human reason. Now, we know the whole canon is important. And in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. And in the New Testament, the old is revealed. And so at Catechism 237, it says the Trinity is a mystery of faith in the strict sense. One of the mysteries that are hidden in God, which can never be known unless it's revealed by God. And to be sure, God has left traces of his Trinitarian being in his work of creation and in his revelation throughout the Old Testament. So let's look at some of the traces of the Trinitarian in the Old Testament. You know from last year, Genesis 1, creation, right off the bat, Genesis 1, verse 2, the earth was without form and void. The darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said, God spoke the word, the word Jesus Christ through whom all things are created. We saw the Trinity, a hint of it there, a trace of it there. We saw it in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel when the Trinity says, come, let us go down together and confuse their language. We saw it in Genesis 18, those three mysterious visitors who visited that day at the oak tree at Mamre and promised a son to 
Abraham and Sarah. The Lord appeared to Abraham, the Lord, by the oaks. Abraham saw three men standing in front of him. He bowed low. He bowed himself low to the earth and asked that they please not pass him by. And he said, quick, quick, get three measures of fine meal kneaded into cakes. He had the servant kill the best, the most tender fatted calf they had, and he hastened to prepare it. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you in the spring, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. We see the Spirit of God in Exodus 31. This is one some of you might not know about. It's one of my favorites. The Lord said to Moses, when the Lord, when Moses was up on that mount and the Lord showed him the vision of everything, Moses came back down. And the Lord said to Moses, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, of Ur, the son of Hur, from the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God. I have filled him with the spirit of God and ability and intelligence and knowledge and craftsmanship to devise, to work in gold, silver, bronze. He was the one who God had picked and filled with the Holy Spirit to craft the Ark of the Covenant. That's important. We'll come back to that. We see the Spirit of God was on Balaam in Numbers 24. The Spirit of God was on the judges. Here, Othniel, the Spirit of God came upon him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. The Spirit of the Lord was mighty in Samson. The Spirit of the Lord stirred Samson, the judge. It came mightily upon David from the day he was anointed king forward. And in Psalm 51, when he has sinned and the Holy Spirit has convinced him, has convicted him of the sin. He says, oh, cast me not away from thy presence, Lord, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. The last words of David in 2 Samuel 23, 2, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is upon my tongue. In the Nicene Creed at Mass on Sunday, we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. Let's see how the Spirit spoke through the prophets. Micah, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might. Nehemiah, he had the Spirit of God through the prophets, yet they could not give ear. In Zechariah, this is the word of the Lord to Zerah rebel, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And Ezekiel, when we studied Ezekiel, how many times did the Spirit enter into him, lift him up, fill him, and take him away? The Spirit of the Lord set me down in the midst of the valley of the dry bones. The Spirit of the Lord was on Isaiah frequently when we studied Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. I have put my Spirit upon him. My Spirit will pour upon your descendants and my blessing will be your offspring. And Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good tidings to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, when Jesus came on the scene in Nazareth, he goes to the synagogue. He stands to read the scroll. They hand him Isaiah. He opens it intentionally. It says, Jesus opened the book and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recover the sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year acceptable of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him. And he began to say to them, 
today. This scripture, Isaiah 61, has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's telling them he's Messiah. He's the anointed one. In Isaiah 7, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A young virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, a young virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And we know that happened. Matthew 1 tells us that before Mary and Joseph had come together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit now acting in the New Testament. Young virgins don't naturally have children. Mary's truest spouse is the Holy Spirit. This was a supernatural incarnation by the power of the Holy Spirit. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, Mary, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mary's fruitfulness is not naturally with Joseph, but supernaturally with the Holy Spirit, who we call the giver of life. The virgin's fecundity is due to the Holy Spirit of the living God. What's fecundity? It's a noun. It's the ability to produce an abundance of offspring or an abundance of new life. The ability to produce an abundance of offspring, an abundance of new life. Remember, this is a daughter of Abraham. Count the stars, Abraham, if you can. Count the sand on the seashore, if you can. God has helped his servant. This is what Mary says in her Magnificat. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his posterity forever. Mary, a daughter of Abraham, will preserve the posterity of Abraham forever through Jesus and this abundance of life. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. There is an abundance of offspring, an abundance of new life in the spirit. Mary's arms around her children, Bernini crafted these columns to look like a mother's arms, the arms of Mary embracing her children. St. Joseph is the fully legal father of the human legal father of Jesus. He was visited by the angel of the Lord four different times in dreams. He received supernatural specific instructions and warnings of impending danger for the Holy Family. Mary is found with child, not by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. The angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, the entire Trinity is present. The Most High God, the Holy Spirit, and the Son of God incarnate in her womb. The undivided Trinity, the divine nature revealed to Mary, who's full of grace herself, and a very acceptable tabernacle, a very acceptable dwelling for the Trinity. With her fiat, with her yes, Mary is indwelled with God. The entire Trinity was involved. We call her the Mother of God. That's a huge title. Christians have invoked Mary in this way since at least the time of origin of Alexandria in the third century. Mary was officially honored as the mother of God in 431 AD at the Council of Ephesus, which ratified their tradition of calling her Theotokos, a Greek term which means God-bearer or she who gave birth to God, mother of God. The church knew that Mary must be defended in this title, the mother of God, because this title would form a wall of protection around Christianity's cardinal mystery, which is the incarnation of Jesus Christ as true God and true man. The mother of God, they had to protect that title by insisting on the divine maternity of Mary. The council of Ephesus was insisting on the full humanity of her son, as well as his full 
divinity. Both sides of the mystery were expressed in this title. At the incarnation, which means to embody or be made flesh, we see him born in the manger. We see the flesh of God. Is that the incarnation? No. The incarnation takes place at the exact moment of the conception, at her fiat, at her yes, let it be done to me according to thy word. At the incarnation, Jesus Christ united his divine person with a human body and soul. Thus, Jesus possesses two natures, human and divine. The union of this, his divine nature and his human nature, is called the hypostatic union. This is important. The hypostatic union means his two natures, divine and human, are united in one divine person. He is true God. He is true man. But it's very, very important to stress and listen carefully that even though Jesus possesses two natures, he is only one person, the same person as the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God. Jesus possesses only divine personhood. Jesus does not possess human creature personhood. He shares his divine intellect and his divine will with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, if each of the persons of the Holy Trinity had separate intellects and separate wills, there would exist three separate little g gods, not one God. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or I came from the Father, or he who sees me sees him who sent me. In the Nicene Creed, we say for us men and for our salvation, Jesus came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. The motherhood of Mary includes everything that natural motherhood normally includes. She conceived and gave birth to a flesh and blood man, Jesus of Nazareth, who actually lived and died in actual human history. But on the other hand, Mary's Motherhood, like that of all mothers, entails a relationship to a person and not simply to a nature. So it's not enough then to claim that Mary is the mother of Jesus' human nature. The connection between persons, between parent and child, is too essential to be left out of the picture. So this is where things turn to the supernatural. Jesus is not a human person, but a divine person person. And that's the hypostatic union. Jesus is the son of God, begotten of the father before all ages and consubstantial with the father. The person to person relationship between Mary and Jesus is that of a human mother and a divine son. Thus Mary's title, Mary, mother of God. The title Theotokos, God bearer, is the highest honor of all God's created creatures. Mary is the sole individual chosen by God for the mission of divine motherhood. Every other believer without exception is adopted by grace to become a sibling of Jesus, a younger brother or sister of Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn among many brothers, says Paul in Romans 8. But Mary is the one believer who Jesus can address with the words, woman, behold your son. Mary is a human mother of a divine son. He who is mighty has done great things for me, she says in her Magnificat. And the greatest thing, the greatest thing that God did for her was to give her the divine motherhood. Now, in the Old Testament, the new is concealed, and in the new, the old is revealed. So was this anything about this in the Old Testament? Yes. And listen carefully. Moses at the burning bush. Moses said to God, he, he comes upon God, a, a bush is on fire, and God's going to reveal to him his very name. What is his name? What if the people say to me, Lord, what is your name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, tell them, I am who I am. Tell the people of Israel that I am has sent me to you. 
Well, this bush that was so intriguing, he took his sandals off and got closer but couldn't look. The bush was burning, yet it was not being consumed. And St. Gregory, the Bishop of Nyssa, who made great contributions to the doctrine of the Trinity and the Nicene Creed, said, spiritually speaking, in Catholic sense of scripture, spiritually speaking, in the spiritual sense of sacred scripture, this passage is related to the divine maternity of Mary. That was part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter six on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.